Did you know that I have three really complicated relationships in my life? With me, myself, and I? Close. My relationship with money, my relationship with people, and my relationship with self. And they're all connected together because when my relationship with money got out of whack, it totally had an impact on those other relationships. That, my friend, is what we call having financial sobriety. So who are you? I'm Matthew Grishman. Who are you? Jim Gebhardt. And we're a couple of financial advisors trying to have an untraditional conversation about our favorite topic, money. Let's go. Hey there. Yes, it's me again, Ace, producer for Financial Sobriety. Jim and Matthew wanted to send their best wishes for the holidays and cheers to a happy new year in person. But then they realized, hey, this is family time. And like you, they wanted to spend some time at home with loved ones. So what better way to transition from one year to the next than with a compilation of several very popular episodes on inflation? I get to choose and I see that inflation is still top of mind for most of you. So for the benefit of those of you who didn't listen, you're now about to get four episodes in one. For the benefit of those who did listen but think they might have missed something, guess what? This is the best of those four episodes. You know what? I think I'm even going to give the gratitude. I'm grateful to be here doing what I do for two wonderful men who believe passionately in what they do to help you with those three important relationships. Your relationship with money, your relationship with the people who mean the most to you, and your relationship with you. And most importantly, I speak for all of us when I say we are most grateful for you. Thank you for your support over the past three seasons of Financial Sobriety, and we all look forward to Season 4 in 2023. Here's to a happy, healthy, and prosperous new year. This is a special episode that we're doing specifically on inflation and the new Inflation Reduction Act that was recently passed. Yeah, which is which is good because I'm sure there are no other money shows out there right now talking about inflation. I assure you there are no <laughs> other money shows out there that are going to talk about it the way we're going to talk about right. it. Right. Thank you. Because the last thing I wanted to do today was come in here and talk about inflation. Because every financial show I'm listening to, every financial periodical I'm reading, every article I'm being asked to contribute to is all based on inflation and what's going on in inflation. Inflation, it's the hot inflation, dot. inflation. It's the hot dot. Yeah, and, it's a hot dot. And you know I hate talking about what everybody else is talking about. I like to talk about different stuff. Well, here's I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Ooh, please do. You and I have been talking about inflation for 25 years. Uh, oh, yeah. 25 years. That is correct, sir. You can go back to the very earliest days of us in our French cuffs. <laughs> and what were those ties that we used to like? Oh, my God. XMI? No, no, no. X Robert, Talbot. Robert Talbot. Talbot. Robert Talbot. Robert Talbot. Robert Talbot. I used Holy to spend cow. almost a week's income on a Robert Talbot on tie. One Robert Talbot one tie. One tie. And for Beth, who's listening, I still have most of them. I know that drives her crazy. Yeah. But it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the Hall of Fame. It's a little bit like going through the museum. Oh, yeah. I remember when I used to wear that. And, oh, I, it just... It brings me still a little bit of joy to look at them in the closet sure. as the relics that they are. You know what you could probably sell those things for? Because they're tight. Well, what is the one thing you talk about you love 
especially coming into studio, you love things that are timeless. Timeless. Bingo. If you go all the way back to our earliest days on inflation, I just I want to start off with just a basic primer. And and we have talked about it on the show, but if you're catching us for the first time, inflation is simply the reduction of your purchasing power, right? The dollar that you have in your pocket, the dollar that you earn is worth less than it was some block of time ago. Right. It buys you less 10 years from now than it buys you today. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that very basic explanation. Yeah. And I, I, I don't wonder, mean to oversimplify. Well, I mean, but I wonder, it's the buzzword. How many people actually understand truly what inflation is at its core? I also enjoy the story that you've told. I've heard you tell at least a hundred times on the price of the stamp, the 1980 stamp. So let's, let's use that as a bit of a benchmark going backwards on how old do you think I am? I don't, it's not a 1980 stamp. I sure wasn't in college in 1980. I was in college in 1990. But the story that you've always told is the 1980 Olympic stamp was 10 cents. Is that the story I tell? Well, that must be my other business partner. That must be your other business partner. Because yeah. the story I tell is when Amy and I went off to college, we went to school 30 minutes away from each other, but we didn't have these things. So yes. we wrote each other letters. There's a speaker in our industry that I'm actually referring oh, to. Well, you assume he was me. He should should have been. Because you know I'm a big deal. He should have been you. Right. No, no. When when Amy and I first went away to school, we'd send each other, you know, little love notes in the mail, little origami folded love notes. In the what? In the mail. The the U.S. Postal Service. Okay. For 25 cents. 25 cents. 25 cents is what it cost me in 1990 to text the love of my life a little love letter. 1990. So that is exactly 32 years ago. Correct. Okay, and the price of the stamp today? I believe, so I own a stack of forever stamps right. that we paid for a while ago. You paid them forever ago. Uh-huh. I think the cost of a stamp today is 57 50? cents. Okay. They keep going up. So, that I mean, that right there, if, are we right? 58 cents. Okay. 58 so, cents. So I would have won on the price is right. So inflation is the buzzword. It's the hot dot. It's right? everywhere. What I was trained, and this is actually one of the the critical components of my training that I fundamentally have believed in and championed for my entire career, which is the fact that inflation is actually the silent killer. That's the danger. That's the real danger. 100%. That's the dragon we're slaying. That is the dragon that you and I are slaying every day in the conference rooms, in the meeting rooms with our clients is that the distraction is not the stock market. It is not the bond market. It is not the real estate market. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to diminish the fact that those are important components to the conversation. Right. Those are important components to the risk conversation that you and I spent most of the spring talking about. Correct. But we did talk about inflation risk, and we get to talk about it even bigger today because of how big that risk really is. But the erosion of your purchasing power is the enemy in the room. And all the years that I've been doing this, inflation has been in the 2% or less category, right? Now they talk about something called the consumer price index. Mm. And for those of you that are, are detailed, detailed oriented people that want to go chew on this a little bit. Yeah, sounds tasty. Well, the, the, the consumer price index has been the most familiar way to be able to get your arms around what is inflation. Aha. What is? However, they have changed the components of the index. Who's they? They as in the government. Ah. 
Well, it's very hard to be paying attention when they change the components of what goes into the number. So inflation- When did this, when did this change happen? Several years ago. Huh. Missed the memo. Well, you got to check your junk mail. Oh, there you go. It's very difficult when the rules of the game change on you. I would still very, very vehemently argue that it is inflation that we're trying to battle. I'm, I'm still hung up on this. They changed the rules thing. Is it possible that that happened to continue to kind of perpetuate this keeping inflation artificially yes. low? The way they have all we these don't years? want to feel uncomfortable. Ah, okay, okay. I just, I just want to don't, make sure we don't, we can't get elected again if we make people uncomfortable. Here's the other disclaimer to this conversation. This conversation is not meant to be political in any regard. Partisan political. Partisan political. Because unfortunately, the policies surrounding this Inflation Reduction Act come from a political entity. Yes. So we have to talk about the politics behind it, and, but it's and, not and a we partisan. Will get there. And it's not a partisan conversation. It's not a partisan conversation. No. So inflation for most of my career has been under 2%. Right. And historically, right, the software that people in our industry use to help project out a future probability of success for somebody's retirement, the 40-year number on that has been more like 3%. Right. So I know these are abstract conce concepts that it's hard to get your head around, but let me try to translate this into something that's digestible and a snackable. Please. Okay? And whatever your numbers are, whatever your lifestyle is, let's break down what's called 3% trendline inflation. So over the course of your retirement, let's pretend we have a, a fictitious couple, Bob and Martha. Bob and Martha are 62 years old, and they are ready to retire. They need $1,000 a month to live on. Grossly good, probably yeah. inaccurate. Yeah, good round but we're number. Making the, we're easy making math. the math very yeah, easy. Easy okay? math. So for every $1,000 Bob and Martha need at 62, if we have 3% trendlined inflation, take a guess what they need when they're 92. So we're going out 30 years. To maintain their purchasing power. I'm going to say they so need... So the $1,000 at 62 needs to equal this at 92 to maintain their purchasing power. Well, I would say it has to at least double. It has to be at least $2,000 just to be in the same place, just so their money can buy them the same stuff. They need $2,440. Wow. Wow. So 1000 bucks a month needs to go to $2,442 a month just to buy them the same stuff. 2.44 times. Wow. 3% trendline inflation. Wow. To maintain where they were. Now, you and I have talked ad nauseum. We have multiple white papers on the subject of the different phases of retirement and how the spending changes, right? And we're not going to go off on a diatribe about that. But in the speed round here on, on Jeopardy!, it's the go-go years, the slow-go years, and the no-go years. Yeah, just, just the idea that retirement, and, and I think we can keep this very high level, the fact that retirement is not a universal experience. It's not 30 years of experiencing the same phenomenon called retirement. There, you, you and I have identified these very distinct phases, just watching our clients, watching our parents, watching our family and friends go through retirement and, and seeing how that 30 or 40 year experience can differ over time where they go from go-go years and early retirement to maybe some slow-go years once they've kind of seen and done everything on their bucket list. It's okay, been there, done that to the point where physical health starts to decline and we get into a period of the no-go years where costs can significantly increase right. and, and even expand beyond what the go-go years were. 
I can tell you both in the art and science around those rising costs in the in the later years, yeah, that those inflate at a much greater rate than CPI, and they also escalate based on you know the longer you live, the more care you, you need, right? Yeah. And we've talked a lot about that. I would imagine CPI might change over time as our population shifts because CPI to include like insure and prunes. Possibly. I, I think it does include In the insure and prudence. Right. But it if you just look at what the CPI is supposed to represent, it's supposed to represent the majority of America, right? Mm -hmm. It takes all of us as individuals and strips all of that away and lumps us all together right. in, into one group called Americans. Right. Just like in the Inflation Reduction Act. I, exactly. Which we're about to get I know. into. We're just going to How wonderful that is. Playing and around. The fact is we've got an aging population. In 1933, when, this, when Social Security was created- it was created based on the premise that we had something like 30 people working for every one person retired. And the idea behind Social Security was to keep our most vulnerable seniors out of poverty, right? These are people, the greatest generation in the world, that just worked their asses off to build a better place for their children and their grandchildren. And FDR came up with a way because so few of them had the means to support themselves later on in life when they couldn't work anymore. Well, let's take care of the people that took care of us. And, and created a better world for us to live in. The challenge with that is, is today, we now have three people working for every one person retired because of that thing called the baby boom. So I wonder if CPI and how it's measured will continue to shift because would, of an aging population. I would suspect, Your Honor, that it will. Well, ha-ha, fun, fun stuff to think about for the future. On Social Security for a second, they've yeah. recently released the largest increase in the history of Social Security as a cost of living adjustment. 10%, right? I think it was 9 point something, 9.6, 9.1, something like this. Yeah, my brain automatically rounds cost, stuff up. Again, again, just to define stuff here, since we don't have a, a, a glossary, cost of living adjustment. Cola. Cola. Coca-Cola? Is to combat inflation, right. right, is to adjust the Social Security benefit based on the cost of living adjustment in day-to-day -day life and day-to-day -day living expenses. So we're spending a lot of time talking about what inflation is yeah. and how you and I fundamentally believe it is the dragon that we have to slay. It, right. is, it is the silent killer in a very long retirement because for every buck I need when I retire, I need 244 at 3% inflation. Right. I, I got a question for you. Inflation is all over the news today. How come, despite the fact that, you know, you and I, who sometimes I like to think are pretty big deals, we've been talking about it for 25 years, yet it doesn't seem like anybody else has. Media-wise, right? It, I haven't heard about inflation in the news. I haven't heard about inflation talked about if I read Fortune magazine, Forbes magazine, the Wall Street Journal. I mean, all, you know, Barron's, all these different sources of financial information i mean well, it's not very headline grabbing well it, it until just, it is yeah it just to me it seems like it really hasn't been around if it's not really been talked about and it really it so why isn't it talked about well it has because it hasn't been painful oh it hasn't been front and center it's always been there you gave the example of your 1990 stamp and where we are today right it's there it's the classic boiling pot of water with the frog and I've heard you tell that story both on stage and in restaurants and bathrooms all over the United States. Well, and we're I think we're experiencing both sides of that story yes. right now. The 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 frog in the well, pot of water. Well, we've been we've been the frog 
in the boiling in the in the water in the cold water for a long time. Right. That's right? that's what inflation has been for the last twenty five years. Is the equivalent of taking a frog, putting him in a pot of cold water, putting the water on the stove, and slowly heating it up. What's going to happen to that frog eventually? Night night. Yeah, it's he's just going to sit there and boil to death. But what happens? What's interesting is is if you boil the water first and throw the frog in the boiling water, he's immediately going to jump out. Yes. And that's happening today, too. Yes. Right? Inflation has all of a sudden reared its ugly head in a big, obnoxious way. It's painful for some people. And and I appreciate that. It's painful for my family. It It's emotionally painful every time I go to the grocery store or the gas pump or wherever I need to swipe something to support my family, and I see prices increase the way they are. Yeah. It's painful. But at the same time, it gives us an opportunity to talk about this dragon that you and I have been breaking our asses for 25 years trying to combat because it's been here. It's just been under the radar. It's been that frog sitting in cold water as that water is slowly heating up. And now it's boiling. And now it's boiling. And what this legislation is, where the intended, I guess, sales pitch is to give us all the feeling— like somebody's doing something about the inflation from a legislative standpoint, sure. which you and I both know is virtually impossible. Inflation needs to be dealt with in, in a monetary way, monetary policy yeah. at the Fed. Let's talk about that. I think at this point, it's fairly obvious to most people out there, at least I've been having conversation with, that this Inflation Reduction Act has very little to do with inflation. It's a sales pitch. It's a buzzword. And I think we can all kind of agree on that. And Initially, when I saw that, I got pretty pissed off. I know. I got pretty angry. I know. And but, and and I get it because you you have a more fundamental understanding of how you would traditionally slay the dragon. Well, and I, that's yeah. that's where I think we start before we go into the into the act that's been signed is you you referenced monetary policy, yeah. right? So, again, if you're if you're listening to this stuff for the first time, is and I'm a classically trained economist, right? I have a degree in economics and a degree in psychology. And when you sit in enough economics classes, they would tell you that there are three ways that you can combat, not you and me, but there are three ways Societally. That, that the government, government can combat inflation. Specifically, it comes through the channel of the Federal Reserve Bank. The Federal Reserve Bank is essentially the, the bank of the U.S. government. They are the body. They're the, 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 the part of the government that controls the interest rates in this country. They also control something called monetary policy. Fancy which, word for money. Right, which, which controlling interest rates is really what? Controlling the cost of, of debt, money. Of debt. Yeah. Controlling the cost of borrowing money. Yes. At the government level, which then comes through the banking system, that then comes to the consumer, Right. Yeah. So, so it's if, a trickle down effect. It is a, it is definitely a trickle down effect. So if you think about it first and foremost, and this has been obviously very well publicized and talked about, is the one the most traditional way that they can have an impact on inflation is to raise interest rates. So if you raise interest rates at the federal level, that's going to trickle down and mean that it's going to increase interest rates at the bank level. Right your mortgage, your home equity loan, your car loan, your credit card loan. 
by nature, what that has a tendency to do when those things become more expensive is... Was there an F in that word you just expensive? said? Expensive? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just, I just wanted to make sure. Just yeah, clarify. I am super caffeinated. So I could, <laughs> I mean, I could talk into this mic for four days. That is by nature, by human nature, going to slow down the spending at the consumer level. Again, always remember the consumer is 70% of the economy. Right. Okay. So if you slow down the spending of the consumer, it is going to basic economics, supply and demand, right? If demand drops, supply is going to go up and prices are going to come down. Ideally. Yes. In a vacuum. That's how it works. In a vacuum. Yes. And ultimately that's where as prices come down, that's how inflation starts to ebb. That sounds painful to not spend money. Well, on this show, <laughs> right? On this show, absolutely. Huh. So that is that is a very conventional, traditional approach to combating inflation, which the Fed has done. So rewind and the tape. And continues to do. Absolutely. Rewind the tape and go back to pre-COVID. Okay. Wow, that's a lot of tape to rewind. That's a lot of tape to rewind. But as soon as COVID hit and, and the bomb went off and the stock market went down 35% in three weeks and everybody was panicked, the Federal Reserve came out and took interest rates at the federal level to zero. Yeah. This is kind of this is kind of getting to why inflation is rearing its ugly head as significantly as it is today. Right. Because guess what? Take everything I just said and reverse it. You take interest rates to zero, that means lending becomes I mean, how many Holy cow, it's free to borrow how money. How many people do we know both socially and and have client relationships with that have mortgages in the twos and threes? Me, your honor. Okay? Yeah. So, money becomes cheap. Hey, we can buy more house. We can buy more car. We can buy nicer stuff for our house. Spend, 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 spend. You know what my drug of choice is? My absolute favorite drug in the world? More. Holy cow. When there's zero interest rates, that's like mainlining my drug of choice, right? When I can get more of fill in the blank, whatever it is that I love, so we got, I get excited. Absolutely. So we got the economy Nice and overheated. And I don't mean to have this be an economics lesson, but if you go back and you look at the fourth quarter GDP, what the heck is GDP? The gross domestic product of the United States, meaning how much goods and services were sold in the fourth quarter of 2021. The growth rate on that was over 6%. That's pretty gross. Okay. That's gross in the context of what it normally is. Right. Okay. It's less. We don't need to go down that path, <laughs> yeah. but that is hot. Yeah, right? The, yeah. the water Smoking is hot. boiling. Yeah. Well, that is what is partly contributed to this overheating of the economy is how we took rates to zero to combat COVID, right? Yeah. Now, and you and I have been preaching this since 2008 when we did that once before, and then they let rates come back up a little, and then boom, we brought them back down to zero, yeah. is we've been secretly telling our clients that you want to wake up in the morning and see that the Fed has bumped interest rates. Yep. Because it's going to be a sign that things are healthier. Well, yep. now the last two moves by the Federal Reserve have been have been three quarters of a percent twice. Yeah. Those are those are not baby steps; those are jumbo steps. Oh, shoot, brother. because they got they got to start to tamper this thing a little bit. And that hasn't happened that egregiously since 1994, the year before we got in the business. Right, you and I got into this business on the heels of the last time the Federal Reserve acted this aggressively. Yep. 
And oh boy, was that uncomfortable for a year or two. Yep. Right. We're talking to bond investors back then that saw their their current bond values drop Owie. by as much as thirty percent. Good AAA rated, like high credit quality stuff that caused a lot of temporary pain because. What do you, you mean? I, what do you mean I can lose money in bonds? <laughs> <laughs> right? That's a whole show. That's another whole show on the misunderstanding of the quote-unquote conservative nature of owning bonds. If we are going to bastardize the English language and have fun with it every once in a while, sure. can you get the word right, please? Uh, please correct me. Misunderestimate. Mis right, right, right. Okay. I got that word wrong. All right. So the number two lever, right? Yeah. First is you can raise interest rates. These are not necessarily in a particular order, right? but these are just what you can traditionally do to have some impact on inflation. The next thing the Federal Reserve Bank can do is, because guess what? They make the rules. Oh. They can change the rules on how much banks have to keep in reserve for emergencies. I seem to remember that being a hot topic of conversation post-2008. Yes. If you go way back there, very similar behavior to what the Fed did. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is, why is that important, right? Well, let's say you and I are a bank. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like we are when it comes to our children. Well, we have children, right? And the banks, how do, how do banks make money? Banks make money by lending out what they have. Oh, I thought you were asking me. Right. <laughs> uh, you're just going to be in the co-pilot seat yeah, today. Yeah, it's all good. You go, brother. You're on fire. They make their money by lending out the money. Right. Okay. So let's say we have. Well, uh, they, they borrow money from the Fed yes. at, a, at one rate. Yes. And then they turn around and they loan it out at a higher rate. Or kind of like the guys, you know, the, with the hard money loans, you got to go, you know, see the guy about the thing. Right. These guys are just you, a little if you don't less pay obvious. Them, if you don't pay them back, they're going to, you know, you're going to see Tony Salazzo and he's going to come see you with a. You know, I think the banks are starting to do that now, by the way. I hope not. <laughs> Hiring Tony Salazzo to come pay you a visit. When the rules change on their reserves, and reserves no different than what we talk about in the, in the bucket concept of the money we have to have now. Versus soon, versus later, versus potentially never. Or, in a more conventional conversation, emergency savings. Right. So the emergency savings that the federal government requires the banks to have, when they move that number up, that means the banks can lend out less. Right. I would imagine that might drive the cost of lending out money up even further because there's now less supply of money to be lent. Bingo, bango. To the consumer. Bingo, bango. And then the, the rest of the waterfall happens, right? right? Right. There's less to lend. The price goes up. The consumer borrows less because they don't want to pay that. Therefore, prices are going to start to come down. And that's a different way of combating inflation. Hmm. Now, tool number two, tool Love number it. two. But yeah. if you go if, again, you got to rewind the tape. It's not good or bad. It just is. It just is. Right. And the Fed to help, I think, in a very meaningful, productive way in March and April of, of 2020, they took the Federal Reserve requirements for banks to zero. Oh, they took both numbers to zero. Zero. Wow. Interest rates, zero. Federal Reserve banking reserves, zero. Wow. Game on. Well, I think a lot of people, I mean, yes, what the picture you've just painted tells me that what's happened fiscally and monetarily since COVID is what really drove a lot of this. I, I would argue that it really started back in 2009 with the Troubled Asset Relief Plan, with TARP, 
because that was really that that bailout package after the 2008 financial crisis. That peanuts. was peanuts. I know it was peanuts, but it was it was a marker. Eight hundred billion dollars. Right, pocket change. I get it. Right. Here. It wasn't then. It wasn't then, but it is because of inflation. It is today. But that started something that never happened before. It started something where, for the first time, the executive branch of government, through executive power, was able to provide pain relief, was able to provide financial pain relief so that the great financial crisis that was occurring didn't have to be as painful as it could have been. Well, I don't know. It, uh, it it was painful for it some was of on, us. It was on the precipice of TKO. For you? No, not just me. For societally. It was. It yeah. was. And it was a drastic move at the time. Yes. I don't believe we're here today dealing with this. If back then when that crisis happened, we as a nation were allowed to suffer the consequences of our choices. We made choices as a country and we all need to own those choices together. We made it okay to allow people to go buy stuff they couldn't afford. We made it okay to make comfort more important than discipline. We made it okay to throw out every ounce of honoring the pain of discipline. Yeah. And so as painful as that may have been for the majority of all of us to go through at the time, we're where we are today on the precipice of some really ugly stuff because we didn't allow ourselves to experience the pain in 2008 that we deserve to experience based on our behavior as a, as a nation. The, the kicking the can on that in 08 and 09 gets us obviously, you know, to the COVID times of how we put six or eight trillion and, dollars. And this is not a partisan conversation. This, this is, is why not. we said this, because this, this is, is a not. government thing. This it, this is a financial planning class in what the heck is going on. We've had two Republican administrations and two Democratic administrations since the very first executive order to make economics a little less painful. Right. It has been a government thing since 2008. And? 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 The pain gets deferred. Yes. It doesn't get eliminated. It gets deferred. It gets deferred. The third item in terms of the the levers that you can pull here and push and pull at the federal level is raising the price of government bonds, right? So as the government issues bonds to pay for debts that the government has, whether it's bridges and tolls and dams or whether it's just, you know, government debt. And let us not forget that we have, you can go to the usdebtclock.com. Dot org. org. Yeah. Go to the usdebtclock.org. And you will see up in the upper left-hand corner that we are now rolling over the $30 trillion mark of U.S. debt in the way of credit card debt, as you and I might think of. Who makes my bills look small. So as they, as they have to deal with paying that debt, the government issues bonds. Did you say billion or trillion? No, that was a T. A trillion. Capital T. Okay. I just wanted to make as sure in, I heard you right. As in trillion. There was a little delay in my brain processing the sound of what you just said. Yeah. That's the third leg of the stool in terms of what the government can do, because if if it's now attractive, if interest rates have come up, which they've done, yep, and now the price of a government bond is higher, then people that have dollars that are discretionary, that they can do something with, they can spend it, they can invest it. Well, now I can get some money, a better return than I've seen in 14 years on a government bond. So now I go buy a government bond 
or I go buy a CD mm. and now that money comes what, what they call out of circulation. They reduce the supply of money, which has been rampant. And you can see that on the debt clock as well. Mm -hmm. It's a little harder to find and I can't verbally explain where it is, but you can see where the, the M2 money supply was 10 years ago and where it is today and how that's ballooned. Oh, there's so much more money in the system today that hasn't been earned. That's just been that that's been part of my frustration with all of these debt relief packages and uh, uh, stimulus packages is that it's money going into the system that never existed before it went into the system. Nobody's earned it. Nobody created anything to create that money. It was just money printed on a printing right. press and distributed back to the public. Right. right. More dollars chasing fewer goods, driving inflation through the roof. Thank you. That, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is how you deal with inflation. Those are the conventional things that you do to combat inflation. Can we get to why I'm pissed off? Yes. Okay. We're going to turn to LaPage on what is the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. <laughs> because we've just simply laid out what inflation is, how you combat it. Mm -hmm. And now in a very nonpartisan way, and we'll probably say that another 10 times on this show because we are not trying to be political. You know what I invite people to do if you're, if you're still listening and haven't fallen asleep or driven your car into a tree is check yourself at the door on this. Check yourself on how agitated you get politically because of what we're about to say. Partisan politically. Partisan politically. Yeah. And, and do your damnedest to be agnostic. Do your damnedest to listen to this in a very Switzerland way to see how relevant this is to combating inflation. Yeah. This isn't a left or right thing. This is a government thing. So the Inflation Reduction Act, and don't take our word for it, Go right to the uh, the White House website and the briefing room where they say, by the numbers, the Inflation Reduction Act will lower costs for families, combat the climate crisis, reduce the deficit, and finally ask the largest corporations to pay their fair share. Sounds that, lovely. That is what the Inflation Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which I get a, a big yuck yuck out of the fact that the abbreviation for it is IRA. <laughs> Right. We spend we spend how much of our life in financial planning land talking about in individual retirement accounts, i.e. a la IRA. Right. And here, you know, we have TARP. We have what was the the big one? I can't remember the name of the big one that we I did during these, COVID yeah, with the I six trillion acronyms. Right. We get all the acronyms. But the the haha -ha acronym for me on this one is IRA. Right. Nice. And it is to address health care spending and cutting prescription drug costs lowering health care costs, defeating special interests, lowering energy costs, building a clean energy economy, reducing harmful pollution, making the tax code fairer, and reducing the deficit. All those things those, sound wonderful. Those are the headline markers in what the Inflation Reduction Act is meant to do. I'm waiting for the part on inflation. I don't think so. So that's what initially, when this came down, I was horrifically pissed off at. But I will say... I didn't let myself sit there pissed off for long because I have absolutely no control over what those clowns in Washington want to call the legislation that they're trying to sell us. And since I have no control over that, and again, this goes back to setting expectations. You, you and I talked about this eons ago on the show about how I've got this problem of setting very unrealistic expectations. And, and the way I've learned how to check that 
is A, I look at how much control do I have over the situation, and B, what has been historically the pattern of what I feel like I'm frustrated with or have an expectation of. So A, I have no control over what our government decides to call this bill, number one, and number two, historically, they like to use names, they like to use descriptions that are very sales appeal-y, and the curtains don't always match the carpeting when it comes to what it's called versus what it does. So when I look at those two pieces of information, do I have an unrealistic expectation that if somebody tells me this is the Inflation Reduction Act, is it an unrealistic expectation of me to actually think that it might address inflation? And based on how you and I look at expectations as reasonable or unreasonable, that tells me I've had an unreasonable expectation of what this bill should actually address based on the title. Because that's been the story forever. And part of my argument, and I completely understand where you're coming from, and part of my argument is where, where in the details of what I just read is kind of the cliff notes in terms of what it's addressing. Is it one of those three? Is it the White House that has and the legislative body that has the ability to combat inflation, or is it the Federal Reserve Bank? Right. It's, it's, so let's start obviously there. Obviously, it's the Federal Reserve Bank. We let, know that. Right. And, let, and, and that's where I want people to periscope up and recognize that the executive branch and the legislative branch are not really the parties responsible for trying to combat inflation. That is the job of the Federal Reserve Bank. They can't control it. They can't cure it. But they absolutely can contribute to it by giving us bills that increase the amount of money our government is going to spend and the amount of money that it puts in people's hands to go out and spend on meaningless stuff. That's what initially was very frustrating to me. Yeah. And this is not quite a trillion dollars. Oh, thank heavens. I think it's in the, I forget exactly. So back in the chump change land, it's just in, billions again. It's just, I think it's in the seven to $800 billion range. Ah, good. Somebody can certainly fact check us on that. And it is intended to provide some relief in different segments of the United States population. Right. Well, and, th and this is what I wanted to get to, because we could sit here like, and, and this is what I'm hearing in most of the other money shows. Most of the other money shows I've been listening to and the articles that I've been reading is there's a lot of anger out there. Oh, come on. A lot of anger. What? Right? What's everybody so angry about? The exact same thing I seem to have been pissed off about. Wait a second. Their house is at an all-time high. Their rental properties, if they have them, are at all-time high. Their stock portfolio, okay, it's not at an all-time high, but it's pretty damn high. And the labor supply is really tight, so wages are up. What's everybody pissed off about? Hmm, that's a great question. Maybe it has something to do with somebody telling me one thing and doing something else. Maybe that's just not something, no matter how good my life is, our society tolerates very well. I know I don't tolerate it very well. You and I spend so much of our time trying to provide perspective. Yes. And looking back at what has transpired. And when we sit with our clients and show them how much money they've made. I did it yesterday with a client who he was like, I had no idea. What do you mean we're up X percent over the last three years? I said, well, here, here's here's the report. I'm not, this right. isn't stuff I can make up. That's, sure. <laughs> that's not ethical and I wear orange. Sure. If if you own a home. If you own a home and, and you, you own stock. And you own stock and you look back three years ago, you are wealthier today than you were three years ago, is it regardless all, of inflation. Is it at an all-time high right now? Maybe not. 
No, but not too far from it's it. It's pretty freaking high. Within 10% of the all-time high. Right. Right. So that. So what is everybody pissed off about with this? My guess is the people who are pissed off are the people who maybe don't own a home or don't own stocks and are truly feeling the pressure of inflation. And we've got a government telling us that they're going to help provide relief. I mean, what's the name of the bill? They're going to provide relief and reduce inflation through this big swooping act. And I could understand why people who are dealing with inflation in real terms are pissed off at that. Let's go over the kind of the five, so, yeah, let's the get five markers it. of this, yes, right? The five please. kind of, you know. Let's be done being pissed off the big at the provisions. political side of this, and let's just look at what this freaking thing actually is right. and, and how it's going to impact our lives and so, how it might impact our financial sobriety. Absolutely. So the, the first is the creation of a 15% minimum corporate tax rate. Hallelujah. And for big, big, big businesses, businesses that are making a, you know over a billion dollars a year, it helps prevent their ability to manufacture their tax rates in such a way that would be less than that, right? So that should be tax revenue for more tax revenue for the government. Now, if you happen to own one of these businesses or you're a shareholder in one of these businesses, eh, probably not so great, but go way back to one of my all-time favorite TV commercials, all time. And I wish I, I mean, we could probably go find the exact date of this thing. I'm going to guess it was late 80s. Okay. It was a Dorito commercial. Okay. Yeah, don't worry, we'll make more. <laughs> right? That was the tagline of the commercial was. Don't worry, we'll make more. Yeah, we'll make more. Okay. Right? We'll make more Doritos. There's always more Doritos. And in corporate America, in, in for-profit land, they are very smart people who will figure out just how to make more money and deal with the fact that there's a 15% tax. Now, I could go down an economic rabbit hole and say, well, guess what? If you and Ace's handsome younger brother here and I are running a business, well, that's easy. If we're going to pay 15% in taxes, let's just raise prices 15%. Mm -hmm. Well, who, whose shoulders does that fall on? The consumer. <gasps> huh. Oh, I, that doesn't feel like it's going to reduce inflation, does it? Nope. Okay, next. Well, but so it, it's important that we see on both sides of that where that could be a benefit as well as uh, a little bit of pain, right? The, the benefit to getting these large faceless corporations to pay, to contribute a little bit to what it costs to build roads, pay for the fire department to come put out a fire you might have on your corporate campus, to pay for the police that keep us all safe, to pay for the schools that educate our children. I mean, to know that the majority of the largest, most profitable corporations in the United States have not been participatory in that, except at an individual level, right? The individuals who occupy that corporation have to turn around and take a part of their piece of that corporation and pay taxes on it. I personally would rather see the corporate entity pay its taxes before it pays me and, and participate in the taxes. Now, the other side to that, as a consumer, that could wind up being a cost on my shoulder. I don't know yet, but it's important to be aware of the potential pros and cons of that. Yeah. And each one of these we could pick apart for a couple hours. Absolutely. Right? But we want people to stay awake. Yes. Right? So the next big provision here is prescription drug price reform. So for the Medicare enrollee, 10,000 citizens a day in the United States of America turning turn 65. 65. Yep. Right? You pick apart the demographics of the United States, 
I think it's just a year or two from now, the fastest growing segment of the U.S. population is over the age of 85. And, and it makes sense because the boomers are aging, yep. right? Yep. The boomers are, are getting into that stage of life. So consequently, what yeah, what happens if Medicare can now negotiate this stuff? That is definitely going to help the Medicare enrollee. And they are going to put a Medi- Medicare recipients will have a twenty will have a two thousand dollar cap on annual out of pocket prescription drug costs starting in twenty twenty five. Wow, I can now, think of a number of people that's going to be a game changer for. That is a wonderful social benefit, and you could say maybe indirectly on that one that if I'm freed up and I know my my medical prescription drug costs are capped then it's going to leave me a little bit more disposable income for the cruise or the visit to the grandkids or whatever. And so maybe my spending is redirected and would help stimulate the economy. So, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful social benefit. And we have many, many, many clients and many, many friends that are, that are hitting this stage of life. And the cost of certain medications can be tens of thousands of dollars. Astronomical. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, that's a wonderful societal benefit. I'm not exactly sure how it, it addresses immediate inflation, right? Because isn't so much of this the fact of it's the immediate pain of having to make economic choices of whether you put food on the table, gas in the car, or I pay for my health care. Absolutely. Right? Part Absolutely. of the, the struggle when some of this for me is that these are futuristic things that are going to happen down yeah. the road. Yeah, yeah. But the impact of the inflation is today. Right. And there are so many families in this country that have to make those exact choices. Yes. I don't see how this bill addresses any of that. And and I'm trying to just accept that. Well, this next one I think is going to help. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. So $80 billion, with a B, yep. $80 billion is being directed to the Internal Revenue Service. I saw that. To... Do a couple of things. Some of it's technology. There's a whole separate article we could talk about there. Yep. But enforcement. About fifty billion of yep. the eighty billion is going to greater enforcement. Right. Hiring and enforcing the tax laws of this country. And that is going to drive revenue into the governmental coffers. Right. I, I would be initially nervous about hearing something like that because what that tells me is, is with more enforcement, there's potentially more audits that are going to start happening because I get it. There's this huge tax gap where there are lots of people fraudulently filing taxes that are less than what they owe. And 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 so having the ability to capture more of that, it makes me nervous to think that, yes, they're going to be able to capture more of that, but at the same time, it exposes me to potentially more tax planning cost by having to go through an audit but on the same time hopefully some of those technology fixes will make it a little bit more streamlined so they can start to identify the difference between a fraudulent tax return and one that's done properly like yours and mine mm-hmm. right so yeah. there, again there's a balance there where i could get scared i could get a little worried but at the same time i also have a little bit of hope that using the money to upgrade the systems that their technology becomes more efficient and they can just spot these differences a little easier. There's a lot of talk, not specifically in this article, about what some of the projections are relative to the to the additional revenue that that's going to generate and how right. that goes to pay down some of the debt in, the, in terms of the U.S. debt. But hmm. it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars, like in the $100, $200 billion. And when you have a $30 trillion credit card bill, that's like the minimum payment. Right. 
I, right? I read some ridiculous number that over the next 10 years, that investment in the IRS is going to reduce the deficit by 4%. That's That would be wonderful. That was the number I read in an article. Oh, that's a lot bigger number than the math I was I was interpreting. Okay. The Affordable Care Act, which again, if you're if you have your political earphones on, you hear that and you immediately go to one aisle one or the side other. One or the other. Yep. Try not to. Is that subsidy is going to be extended? Not really a lot. I want to go into there. A lot of what is in this act is really an energy and uh, climate related bill to really try to help with clean energy. And again, those are wonderful initiatives, but they're not today. No. They're not anytime soon. No. Those are longer-term investments that, while they may be worthy, they are not going to have a very immediate effect on prices at the pump, prices at the, at the I'm going to use your word, food, food store. Food store, attaboy. So- a lot of what's in it are social hot topics that may be beneficial over time, but it's not, it's not going to have a very immediate effect on inflation, right? There, there is no, for instance, at the, at the state level, and here we are in California and, and what the gas tax represents in California, there's no federal subsidy coming at the, that's going to be pushed to the state level to defer some of the state tax the taxes that exist on gasoline, right? And I'm no policy wonk, and I'm not a very political person, but a lot of these things are wonderful in a social way that will have impact over time. Right. But I don't see how they really drive anything to do with inflation relative to the three pulleys and levers that we talked about. Right. The Fed's going to continue to do their thing. They're, they're, they're talking about, you know, raising rates another 75 basis points. Mm-hmm. And- those kinds of things, I mean... That's three quarters of a percent for us lay folk, sorry. by the way. Yeah, yeah that's okay. Thanks gotcha. for the translator. Yeah, of course. So the, the Federal Reserve has the hardest job of all because go read around the internet a little bit and you will see that it's it's not very easy to get a nice soft landing with 8 and 9% inflation. Yeah. There is a... Chairman Powell has a very, very challenging job with his team and his board to navigate this thing and not absolutely tank the economy by raising interest rates too high. Mm-hmm. That's what I worry about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, what I worry about is the Fast and Furious movie. Right. Is too much. Let's too go. fast. Let's go. Right. Just and and you'll hear these words hawk hawkish and dovish. Right. Right. Because tight. Thank you. And when the Federal Reserve is dovish, they are ah. Pleasant and nice it's a and pretty relaxing bird. and easy. It's a pretty bird. Right. Times are good. The hawk, on the other hand, he's going to kill you. Alan Greenspan, baby, walking into President Clinton's office in 1994 and declaring the party is over. Right. So hawkish, when you see that referencing the Fed, is yeah. they are going to drop the hammer and keep raising interest rates. Right. And they're painful, and, painful, painful. Yes. The risk in the room is it's too much too fast. And that risk, brother, with how easy and dovish our Fed has been since Chairman Greenspan has left office, I'm concerned that when someone is used to being dovish, they can really go quickly to hawkish without fully embracing what it means to be hawkish over time. Like they are the you pros. Said, they go fast and they go hard. They are the pros. Yeah. They have the data. We have to have 
faith and trust and belief in those people that are appointed to those positions. I'm working on that. And it's not, while it's not easy and we can armchair quarterback all we want, those are the conventional ways that you address inflation. What we want to talk about is bringing it down to the family level, the individual level, and how do we tackle what's going on with inflation today. And what this has to do with inflation is this vulnerability, a huge component to the world that you and I live in, the reality that you and I have created that started with our friendship and has now expanded out beyond into our families, into our practice, into our financial sobriety community. That vulnerability that is the glue between super friends and super families is the key to dealing with inflation. Okay, Brene Brown, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm still waiting for the answer. Well, okay, so here's, here's the proof. What have you always taught me are the only three things you can do with your money. We have the goes-ins. Right, which is? What you can earn. Right. The goes-outs. Right. What you can spend. Right. And then the difference is, do you do something with it? You invest it. You can spend it. You can spend it. You can save it. Mm -hmm. You can invest it. Right? Those are the only three things we can do once we get a dollar in our pocket. Yeah. There are two kinds of pain in this world. There's the pain of discipline. There's the pain of regret. And that we are only able to avoid one of those pains choose wisely. I'm looking at this inflection point of inflation and what's going on today, and we have a choice to make, the pain of discipline, which is a very vulnerable conversation for a family to have with one another, which is, hey, we need to tighten the belt a little bit. Or we can continue to keep up with the Joneses, spend away all of our financial security so that we don't miss out on anything, and then we get to deal with the aftermath, which is the pain of regret. I hope everybody is choosing wisely. Which in very simple terms is called the bill. Oh. You get the bill. This, in, this inflation and these conversations, I think, are really important for families to have. And even if you're an individual, go look in the mirror and you, you don't have a partner, you don't have kids or whatever, but you have to make intentional choices in the world that we live in today because things are so crazy expensive. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what we're doing here today is we're going to help people make some of those choices going forward because every day we read another piece of news that describes how the majority of Americans can't handle a $600 unexpected expense. And we are going to give people some remedy, some action items that they can take action on to help with that. You live below your means. That's the society's way of saying you don't spend every dollar of the goes-ins every month. The goes-ins and the goes-outs are not the same number. One of my favorite chapters I got to write about in financial sobriety is this concept called lifestyle inflation. When Amy and I were 25 years old and I was a brand-new cold-calling stockbroker living in New York City, we were making peanuts— and all we ever did every day was dream about just the slightest of pay raises so that we could maybe afford a Broadway show. We had this wonderful little booth in Broadway called the TKTS booth. And if I, you went there on the, Wednesdays, I remember those. right, you could get two firsts. Right. We couldn't even afford that. Well, I got the pay raise of a lifetime. I went from $400 a week to $500 a week. That was a huge pay raise. Most, a, most certainly. A 20, 25% pay raise. Thank you for the math. <laughs> You're welcome. And now we could do that. We could go to a Broadway show. We could go out to eat every once in a while. Mine, could, mine was a gym membership. Oh, that's what you wanted? So when I moved to California at 26 years old, the rent 
was 2x what I was paying in Rochester. Mm. A membership to a health club was like $37 a month for the silly stuff I remember. No can do. Yeah. In the basement of the apartment that I lived in in Walnut Creek, California, was a rickety, ratty old Stairmaster. There were two of them. And there was one of those massive widescreen TVs. Well, did it come with a projector? No one, right. No one ever wanted to be down there. So I just flipped the script and I made that my private gym. Mm. And I had my I had my TV. I turned the equipment around so I could watch the TV and I had my own private gym because I, I couldn't afford the $37. That was a breaker. I sure. Couldn't, I couldn't do it. Sure. And well, whether it was a blessing or not, I didn't have a credit score in order to be able to have a credit card. So for me, being able to get that first pay raise would have allowed me to afford that gym. Ah, and that's what Amy and I continue to do as we got lifestyle, little bumps in lifestyle pay. inflation. Yeah, we we expanded our lifestyle sure. to fill the allotted space that it was given through this additional income. Well, the big payday hit when we moved to Seattle, and I got that big job, and my income jumped ten x. Whoosh! Well, we had to buy a house. And, of course, that house had to have views of every mountain range you could possibly imagine. And what do you have to do when you buy a new house? Furnish it. you got to fill it with stuff. stuff. You can't sit on Inside the floor. Inside and outside. Right. Well, once you fill it with stuff, now you've got to maintain and clean all this stuff. But I don't have time to do that. So now I have to hire the cleaning staff to do this for me. Now we have to have a second car because the driveway is big enough to have a second car. And, and, on, and, and on, on and on and on. And so when I look back... Over that period of time where my income literally jumped tenfold in a matter of a few years, Amy and I weren't one nickel ahead in true wealth creation. Our lifestyle had expanded to this really fun lifestyle. But if you looked at our bank account, if you looked at our retirement account, we had made no forward progress. That is the kind of inflation that is a true risk to the people sitting here with us in this conversation today. It's not the inflation we're reading about on television and seeing the news. Because I'll tell you, since you and I became very well aware of this concept of lifestyle inflation, when financial sobriety showed up in our lives and we started to develop a much more intentional relationship with our money and how it supported the things that meant the most to us, the people, the places, and the experiences, and when we got those things in alignment where now our money lives became simpler we weren't looking at our bank accounts at the end of the month where, wondering where all our money went. We knew exactly where it went. We started to insulate ourselves to create our own reality to where some of this outside world stuff like inflation in the world that no longer control? affects us because they're in charge of that. Right. Can't control that. We have no control over that. But what we do have control over is how much we allow our lifestyle inflation to compound each year as we experience more financial success in life. So that is managing, as we like to call it, the goes-ins, as in your income, mm -hmm. what you bring in yep. to the family, and the goes-outs, what goes out. Yep. And if those numbers are equal, then we've got some inflation risk to talk about. If the goes-ins are worth more than the goes-outs, then everything we're talking about today you is, is a repeat it. of what you already know. Yeah. And reinforcement and validation of what you already know. Here's the ultimate takeaway. The key to battling the uncontrollable part of inflation that exists out in the world today is by embracing your own personal lifestyle deflation. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Right now. Say it again. The, the way we deal 
with the uncontrollable inflation that exists in the world today, I'm going to make the assumption that if you're still listening to the show today, your goes-ins and your goes-outs are the same number. Or perhaps your goes-outs might even be a little more than your goes-ins. So my suggestion would be if you and I started developing some lifestyle deflation years ago so that we could be prepared for an environment like this, meaning you and I intentionally years ago started having the goes-outs be a lot less than the goes-ins. Okay. Right? We started building savings into our life. I'm with you. What you and I did unintentionally, unaware- Is deep personal deflation. Yeah, personalized deflation, lifestyle deflation. That's the ultimate secret today. If you are where we were a number of years ago, looking at inflation today is very problematic to your family, and it's affecting not only your relationship with money, but it's starting to affect your relationships at home. It's affecting how you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror every morning. If that's the case, then the the key, the critical step, the action, the call to action to get out of what you're feeling right now is lifestyle deflation. That puts it back in your control. Yes. Right? That's where That's I what think, we have control over. Right. And that's what I think too often is where the fear comes from, right? Is all of these things that are outside of our control and we can worry about those to oblivion. Let's bring it back to, into this this mindset of creating your own reality sure. of what do I have control over? Sure. Right. If you want what 25 years and 25 years. So add that all up 50 plus years of being around this money business, the single greatest concept to help us deal with the inflation, this unprecedented historical inflation we haven't seen in this country in 40 plus years. The best way to handle it is through lifestyle deflation. Slow down. And if you do, boy, I can't wait to see how fast you'll wind up going. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Brokers International Financial Services, LLC. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Gebhardt Group Incorporated does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.